If you have a Bible, if you would turn in it or turn it on to Genesis chapter, well, really the very, very end of chapter 11, but chapter 12, if you are using and you're, please use them, the, the, the new pew Bibles that are either in the pew rack or in the chair in front of you, you want to turn that open to page 8. And actually, even if you have a Bible and there's a pew Bible in front of you, if you could open it for the first time, because there is something about opening a book for the very first time. It is a sweet thing to do, and it's extra special when it's a Bible. So if you could just open it up to page 8 for me, that would be wonderful. As Don started the service and told you his memories of, this, of July 20th, I found myself as we got closer and closer to coming back in here that his phone call to me was kind of filling my mind repeatedly. Uh, he called as we were walking out of an Albertson's grocery store in Great Falls, Montana. And as he began to tell me what was taking place, I must admit there was an enormous amount of shock. I could not quite figure out what he was talking about, that wah, 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 wah. I'm like, water, what? I mean, in, in my head, there was sort of this great big what kind of filling this screen of my mind. As he began to share and was telling me more, he's, what he's describing, I'm like, hang on a second, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. When I left here on July the 18th, there was no water in the building. What is going on? I, I was very confused, and it took me a while. But then as they began to send text pictures to my phone, there was no denying that what I thought wasn't right or shouldn't be, that's what it was, and it was bad. The pictures painted a very devastating thing. Now, I was given very direct orders, you will not turn around. You must continue on your vacation. You will not come back. So as we turned north out of Great Falls and headed up Interstate 15, there were moments where we'd talk as a family and then silence. You're kind of pondering, kind of, what is going on here? And I began in my own head to kind of wonder what can be done. You know, how, how do you make it right? I knew we had a wedding coming. How are we going to do a wedding? How do we do this? How do we do a service? I mean, what can be done? And then when we returned to town and I walked in on that Tuesday morning and I saw the devastation, there was a little bit of a, <gasps> but then there was also this, what's it going to be like when it's fixed? What is it going to be like? Now, as we come in here, we have our first service in here. We're, we're kind of going to start, not kind of, we are. We're starting a new series today, looking at the life of Abraham. Now, today you're going to hear me refer to him as Abram because that's what he's called most of his life, literally. We know him as Abraham, but really he's Abram, but we're going to look at his life. And part of the reason why we're doing that is because we want to learn more about God but also we want to learn more about really his restoration plan. You know, can God make things very good again? Can he do that? We want to learn about that. And there is a sense in which there's a parallel between this series that we're talking about and really the things that went through my head that I just shared with you about the flood. They're, they're very similar. 
See, Genesis chapter 12 is considered the theological starting point of the Bible. But we're all smart enough to know that there was 11 chapters first. There were. And they kind of set the scene. See, Genesis 1 and 2 really is the story of God creating what He made. And the only way to really describe that is God uses the words, it was very good. The way He created it, it was meant to be very good. But then Genesis 3 through 11 begin to happen. They begin to unfold and sin begins to enter into human experience. And what was good all of a sudden wasn't so good anymore. And even though, even though a flood happened in the middle of that, that didn't stop things from getting worse. It didn't stop people from going farther down that road. They kept going there. And it was bad. And if you're kind of reading along in Scripture and you realize that the world wasn't the way it was supposed to be, God created it. It was supposed to be good. He created it to be very good. It wasn't anymore. What's going on? There's a sense in which the way the Bible was written, you're sort of supposed to come when you come to the end of Genesis chapter 11 to kind of ask the question, God, do you have a plan? God, do you have a plan to make it good again? God, can you make it good? What's going to happen? God's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. He's the point of life. Can he do this? It's his thing. What's he going to do? In terms of the Bible, that question, God, do you have a plan to make it very good again? is a huge biblical question. It's a huge theological question. But it really is a very personal question to each of us here today. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 to 11. Both of those chunks of Scripture tell us that the Old Testament, including Genesis, was written for our benefit. It was written for our good. And there is a sense in which if we are asking God, God, can you make life good again? We're also, in a sense, asking God, can you reach into my life, into my circumstances, and can you make them good again? To personalize that question, maybe you could be asking this morning, God, can can you make things good again if I'm struggling with cancer? God, can you make things good again if I'm struggling with my dad's dementia? God, can can you make life good again if I'm struggling financially? God, can can you make life good again if I look around me and, and my family just seems to make terrible decisions and we just seem to have nothing but devastation? Can you make it good again? God, can you move in some way in my life, in my circumstances, God, I'm struggling right now, right here. I don't even know exactly why I'm struggling. But God, I'm losing hope. God, can you make my life good? That's in the backdrop of this whole series. It's not just about an old couple. It's also about us. You know, from the list of volunteers that Don read at the beginning of the service, 
and all the different companies that we've asked you to write thank you notes to. There's a whole lot of pieces that had to come together to this room to be restored, for the offices to be restored. It didn't just kind of happen. There was all kinds of things that had to come together. If you're going to restore something, it's not simple. So you need to ask the question, what are the pieces that God needed to bring together? What are the things God does so that things are restored? What I want to do this morning is to ask you to look with me out of Genesis 12, end of chapter 11, into Genesis 12, to look at sort of three pieces, three things God does to restore things. And we're going to kind of personalize them in a sense in terms of how do we relate to these pieces. Okay, so piece number one, what does God need to do to restore things? What is our connection? Piece number one would be this. We need to know that God is faithful and active. We need to know that. We're going to understand restoration. We need to know God's faithful and He's active. He's actively faithful. He's faithfully active. The first part of Genesis 11, which we're not going to look at, just really set the scene though, is the story of building the Tower of Babel. And that doesn't go really well for the people because God shows up and God judges and He scatters them and that's not a good thing. And then, as happens a lot in the first little bit of the book of Genesis, a scene ends and then a genealogy comes. And I know genealogies are the part of Scripture we all get really excited about. So instead of reading the whole genealogy, I want you to zoom in with me on verses 27 to 29 of Genesis 11, near the end of that genealogy. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram and Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the year, in year of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Yes, he married his niece, if, in case you're wondering. That's the same person. It's a little creepy. I'll give you that. Interesting thing. The human writer of Genesis, Moses, would often use genealogies like this in the first little bit of Genesis to kind of go from sort of one important character to kind of set up the scene for the next important character, kind of as the story unfolded. And a scholar by the name of John Salehammer said, you know, interesting thing about these genealogies, usually they'd have ten names. This genealogy had eight. And usually the ten names in the genealogy are all significant, and yet that last name, Ishkit, is never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. We think it's a female name, so he kind of gets us to eight names. So why is he doing this? Well, there's almost a hint in a genealogy, which is not something you and I really salivate over. I get that. But it's almost in this genealogy like God is saying, I've always had ten, I've only got eight. Maybe God's going to do something. And so you kind of get excited like God's going to do something. And then you read verse 30. You see it on the screen. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. That kind of sucks the hope right out of us, doesn't it? It's like God's going to do something. He's making something happening. And we're not going to get any more names if she's barren. We're going to be stuck at eight. 
What's God doing here? What's this thing setting us up for? I mean, that sets up the challenge, making it even bigger and harder. What's going on here? Well, it does look bad. It does look bleak, yes. But that's not the whole story. We need to go back just for a second, a little earlier in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3, when God made a promise to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, God says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that's not a detailed promise. It doesn't give us all the full color. It doesn't have all kinds of movie trailers with it. It's just this brief promise. But in that brief promise, it sounds like God already has a plan to deal with sin, to deal with the enemy of our souls, that God's kind of promised to do something. So in Genesis 3, God's saying, I'm going to do something. I have a plan. And although it's not super, super apparent in the genealogy in Genesis 11, there's a hint of it. There's an aroma of it. God, in essence, is saying, I made a promise back there. And I need you to know, even though it looks really bad right now, I'm going to complete the promise. I'm being faithful to what I said I would do. Yes, it can look bleak. Yes, it can look really bad. But God is saying, I am active. Part of God's restoration plan really is that. God makes promises and he faithfully brings them to completion. That's really what Genesis 11, the genealogy, is pointing towards. It looks bad. But God said, I'm not done. Now here's a question, why should you and I even give a rip about that? Why should we care about this? Well, consider this with me just for a second. If God is faithful and God is active, maybe things can be different. Maybe the circumstances that you're in can change. Maybe his description of Abram and Sarai is going to be different. And there is a sense in which as God is telling the people, telling Abram and Sarai, hey, I'm faithful and I'm active. See, it would be really easy for God to be active, just be doing things. But he's not just doing things. He's being faithful to his promises. He said, I'm going to restore this thing. If he's faithfully active, things can be different. They may start bleak, but they'll be changed. Maybe you and I need to consider in Genesis 11, he's inviting Abraham, Abram and Sarai to a different life. Maybe he's inviting us the same way. He's inviting us to something that will be restored. Piece number two. Piece number one, we need to know he's faithfully active. That's part of his restoration plan. He's doing it. Piece number two, we need to walk forward as God directs. Okay, huge. We need to walk forward as he directs. Joshua chapter 24 and verse two tells us that Abram and his family weren't exactly what you would call church-going folk. 
They worshiped other gods. They were, we would say, and you know, in a church we'd say they were pagans. And what we understand from some of their names in their family tree that there's a probably, probably a really good chance that they worshiped the moon. That's what they did. That was kind of their thing. Huge thing. Even though they weren't interested in God, even though they didn't pay attention to God, what does God do? God says, I'm going to speak into their lives. I'm going to show up. So I want you to read with me the end of chapter 11 into the beginning of chapter 12. So verse 31 of chapter 11. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. But they came to Haran, they settled there. They basically went halfway. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 1, God just kind of jumps in basically and says, Abram, here's a master plan. Here's what you got to do. Abram wasn't given like a flight schedule to pick. What, what flight is most convenient for you to go to Canaan? No, he's not really given an option. God says, you go. In essence, God is the one that is in control. If this is going to happen, if restoration is going to take place, God is the one who directs it. God is the one who drives it. He's in control. Please don't miss that implication. You and I can't restore things by ourselves. Restoration is not a process you and I lead and control. What it is, restoration is a process that's God-controlled and God-directed that we participate in. See, if God was going to rebuild their lives, if God was going to make everything very good again, it's something He drives, not them, not Abram, not Sarai. God does. Part of what that means then is Genesis 12, 1, when the Lord said, go, that really is a test of faith. Abram, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me with what I'm telling you you need to do? And it kind of makes me wonder if you and I are going to experience restoration, if it's God-controlled and God-directed and we simply participate in it, are we going to trust Him? Are we going to go when He says go? Are we going to stop when He says stop? Are we going to trust Him in this now with that test idea God are we going to trust you in the background I want us to think about verse 1 again and I just quick observation Genesis 12 1 sometimes you and I read things and we think everything's in actual chronological order but there's very good reason biblical reason to think that verse 1 actually preceded chronologically verses 31 and 32 okay Part of the reason I say that is because of things said in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, if you want to check that out and find out why I'm saying that. But when you zoom in on verse 1, God's giving a test, but you look at the things in verse 1, there's very much, I think, a sense that God is asking Abram to walk away from things that were known to him, things that were probably comfortable to him, things that maybe in one sense sort of formed his identity. I mean, leave your country. 
Leave your kindred. Leave your father's house. A lot of those things shape us and mark us. This is who we are because of those things. And God's saying, leave them. He's saying, go away from them. Those were things he probably found pretty comfortable. That might be why, though they were supposed to go to Canaan, why they stopped halfway. Because it was hard. Haran was more familiar. Maybe Haran was a place where there were more moon worshipers, and so that was a good place for them to be. But God is saying, you need to keep going. Here's the thing I think we need to understand. It's very possible for you and I to be comfortable in circumstances, in situations, even with things in our lives that are terrible for our souls and not even know it, not even see it. We think it's normal. We think it's good, so it must be. Part of the reason, folks, why we need to walk in God's direction, why we need to submit to Him, is that. Is there's things you and I say, this is great, it's got to be like this. That's comfortable. And God would say, no, it's not. Abram was comfortable worshiping the moon, and God said, that's not good. That's not right. I'm really not a very technologically advanced person. That's why we had children. They help me with these things. But I, I really like Google Maps. And part of the reason I like Google Maps is because I can sit on my computer and I can put directions in to places we need to go. And then there's a function on Google Maps on the computer that will send the directions to my phone. So when I get in the car, I push the button on my phone, and because of GPSs that I don't understand how they work, they know where I am within three feet, which makes me very nervous if there's a missile involved, um, <clears throat> is with those directions, it will tell me where to turn. We had to go to Spencer. I'd never been to Spencer before, and we had to go to Spencer, and it's telling me, you know, turn in a quarter mile and then turn in 500 feet. It's telling me, you know, it works perfectly. I get where I'm supposed to go as long as I follow the directions of Google Maps. Exact same thing. If I want to move in a restored direction, maybe what I need to do is I need to realize I need to walk as God directs. Piece number three. If you and I are going to get restored, God's restoration, how does He do it? He does it by Him being faithfully inactive. I need to know that. He does it by directing things, which means I better start walking with him. And then the third thing, the third piece of it is God gives promises, so we need to align with God's promises. If we want to move in a restored direction, we've got to align with God's promises. Verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse in you, sorry, and in you all the families of earth will be blessed. He's saying, here's some things I'm going to do. In essence, what's playing out here is Abram is being told, Abram, if you walk where God tells you to walk, 
you obey God, there's these blessings that come. Now, there's a huge implication in that for you and me, that if you and I do the things God asks us to do, that God's going to bring things into our lives. Now, that does not mean your life is going to be perfect. But what it does mean is God's going to put His hand and His presence and His goodness in your life. Consider with me really quickly just the words, some words in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 32. I found it so quickly earlier this morning. There we go. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not will how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you get that about God? He says, here's what I'm doing for you, and that's just the start. Some amazing truths that I pray. We just really quickly kind of review some amazing truths that we need to know, that we need to be really respond to, that I pray will fill this room every time we gather. So partly why we have crosses and we have lit up, we want you to know this. See, an amazing truth you and I need to know is that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross in our place for our sins and to rise again. Okay, that is something we need to know from history. That is a truth. That happened. So why did it happen? Well, there's another amazing truth. That is God wants you to be reconciled to him and the way you and I become reconciled to God is by turning from sin to God. We call that repenting and trusting the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And really, when we realize that, then you go to this verse and God is saying, you trust me, that's simply the beginning of what I want to do. That's the beginning of a restoring work I want to do in your life. That's just a drop. It's just the beginning. I've got so much more. Please understand, the crosses are a symbol of Jesus' death. But they are also a symbol that God has so much more for you. He wants you in a relationship with him where he wants to pour out things in your life. He wants to add and bring those things to you. Let me ask some big questions. Questions I think we need to wrestle with this week. Have you trusted Christ? See, that really is the starting point of this restoration thing. Restoration begins with Jesus. Have you trusted Him? Following that, are you walking as God directs so that you can align your life to His promises? Are you following Him? He's got these things Graciously, he wants to bring into your life. Are you walking with him so he can? Please don't think that's just a moment in the sermon. You don't need to think about it. I pray this week you will wrestle with those questions. Now let's go back to, to Genesis 12 and kind of walk through these, these promises. Verse 2, kind of zero in there. What's God say he's going to do? Well, in verse 2, what he's telling us he's going to do is he's going to take a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old woman, and he's literally going to have them come together, literally, and they're going to become a great nation. 
Okay, now as we go through this story, you're going to find out, if you don't already know the story, as we go over this the next number of weeks, you're going to find out that's a huge issue in this whole story. Are they going to align themselves with God's promise to actually make that happen? The next blessing is really general. We don't know much about it other than God says, I'm going to bless you. Then the third blessing that shows up in verse 2 is is very simply, hey, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. Now, biblically, really quick, got to tie some things together. In Genesis 11, the people building the Tower of Babel said, we're going to make our name great. And God said, that's not how life works. I'm the one that makes names great. So he says to Abram, I'm going to make your name great. Then you go forward a chunk of years, 1,200-ish, 1,300-ish years. He says it again to David, I'm going to make your name great. And then he waits 1,300 more years, or actually about 1,000 more years, and God says it one more time. I'm going to make someone's name great. It is the name of the Lord Jesus, who will be given the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess that He is Lord of all. This promise to Abram is saying, I've got something huge coming. Now, Abram maybe didn't fully get that, but you and I need to. This promise to make his name great is not insignificant. It is huge about us being restored because it takes us right to Jesus. Don't miss that. Going on into verse three, well, at the end of verse, basically he takes those at the end of verse 3 and says, hey, Abram, because of those because I'm blessing you in some, all these ways, you're going to be a blessing. In essence, implication for us, why does God bring things into our lives? For us to pass it on. We take what God has given and we share it. He's calling for that. Verse 3 continues some more blessings. One of them is basically, Abram, you're going to be a conduit of blessing. If someone blesses you, Abram, through you, there's going to be blessing to them. How you responded to Abram was going to impact. And we'll see that through this story. People that bless Abram come out good. We're also going to see the reverse. God says if someone dishonors you, which is not trivial, but it's not a curse. But Abram, if they dishonor you, I'm bringing cursing. And we're going to see that in this story. And then finally, he comes to this thing where he says at the end of verse 3, the final one, hey, you know what? Through you, all families on earth are going to be blessed. Now, similar to the great name thing, you and I need to understand how this fits into all of Scripture. This is a thread that will take us back to Genesis 3.15 where he promised what he was going to do, that I'm going to, you know, in essence, I'm sending a Savior. Satan, you're going to be bruised in the head. That goes from there to this statement, through you all families on earth are going to be blessed. But it also points forward again. It points forward to Genesis chapter 3 verse 18, or verse 8, excuse me. Did I just say Genesis 3.18? How about we try Galatians 3.18? Actually, Galatians 3.8. This sermon better end soon because I'm running out of words. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, notice this, what did He do? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 
saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God was telling Abram, Abram, I have got a restoration plan because I am a restorer. I am the restorer. And the way I'm going to bring restoration is through my son. And Abram, he's going to come because you and Sarai are going to start a great nation. See, that great nation promise leads to all, na- all families, all nations being blessed through Abraham. See, Abram really is a conduit to Jesus. Huge thing, though, to notice about Abraham and Sarai. Over the next chunk of weeks from now till Easter, we're going to see Abram and Sarai try to live in light of these promises. And sometimes they do really, really well. And when they do, there's amazing blessing in their lives. Things that just kind of go, wow, how did that happen? Because God showed up. But then there are other moments where they decide they're going to take control of things. They're going to try to advance their own agenda or maybe God's agenda, but they're going to drive it. And that leads to enormous devastation. Huge problems. See, here's what we need to understand. What they, I think, are teaching us is God's restoration plan. God makes promises that He's faithfully working to complete. He calls us to walk as He directs. And He says to do that so that we'll align with His promises and we will receive all that He has for us. That was a struggle for them. What they wrestled with, I think we wrestle with. See, they needed to come to the place where are they going to align with God's promises? Are they going to trust God? The same issue might be true for you and me. Will we trust God's promises and align with them? Will we do that? We want restoration. I think we need to. How would you respond if you were in Abram's tent that day? How would you respond? I'm going to ask you to read with me verses 4 4 down to 9 of Genesis 12 and see how did Abram respond. So Abram went as the Lord had told him And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morai. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tents with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Abram took a step. He followed God's directions. God said, go to the land I'm going to show you. So he starts to go and he gets to the land and he does what God says. He looks at it. He surveys it. 
He sees it, and he worships God. He turns away from the moon worship, all that other stuff he'd been doing, and now he truly worships the true God. He goes there. So this is where I need to be. God had given him an invitation, and he responded. How are you going to respond to God's invitations to you? Today, God is inviting you to trust his son as your savior. How are you going to respond to that? Today, God is inviting you to, to follow him, to go where he's directing. How are you responding to that? What are you doing with what he's asking today for you to do? You know, in the grace of God, this room has been restored. But folks, this is simply a little symbol. This is simply a drop in the ocean of what God can do in people's lives to restore them, to renew them, to reboot them. God is showing us in the story of Abram and Sarai what he can do in lives. So here's the question. How are you going to respond? He's inviting. He's promised. He's faithful. And now he's saying, will you come with me? How are you going to respond? Let's pray.